Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. As a quick reminder, before we start today's podcast, you can find all of our COVID-19 resources and register your industrial business as a COVID-19 response supplier by visiting thomasnet.com slash COVID-19. According to a recent survey from Main Street America, which represents a network of 300,000 small businesses across the country, almost 3.5 million businesses of the 30 million small businesses nationwide are at risk of closing permanently over the next two months. And more than 7 million businesses may be forced to close permanently over the next five months. This puts more than 35 million Americans who work at small businesses at risk of imminent unemployment. In the face of these wide-reaching impacts of COVID-19, what can small business leaders do to help their companies survive? Today, I'm joined by Jim Blassingame, host of the Small Business Advocate Show, which has been on the air as the world's only weekday radio talk show dedicated to small business since 1997. With decades of experience working with and talking to small business leaders, Jim has a keen understanding of what it takes to run a successful small business and how to keep that business running even after the unprecedented impacts of COVID-19. In today's episode, we'll talk about how small business leaders can strategically prepare their companies to handle these impacts, discuss Jim's surviving is winning approach to keeping companies afloat during this challenging time, and explain why he believes small businesses will be the foundation of the economic recovery. Hey, Jim, let me start with a thank you. Normally, we kind of reverse the table here, and uh, you are uh, so kind to have us on as a regular guest for your small business advocate radio show. And I think there are so many you know, life experiences, and as a chronicler of small to medium business, so many things that you can share with our listeners right now and help them understand and provide a bit of context. Let me just ask, though, Jim, and it's a question I've never asked you. How did you become such an advocate for small to medium business? What was it in your background that started that off? Well, I, I grew up on a farm and, uh, you know, I saw, I saw the, the, I mean, that's, that's about as rubber meets the road as it gets. When you dig something out of the dirt, make something from, from a little tiny thing and turn it into something you can take to town and sell. Uh, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, uh, basic. And, and then as I, as I, as I grew up and went to work uh, in the marketplace, I worked for corporate America for 23 years. And all during that time, even though I worked for companies like Sears and Xerox and, and others, most of my customers were, were small businesses. Sure. And so I went to work with corporate America serving small businesses. And so then when I left corporate America in the late 80s, I, what I knew about small businesses was that they needed help. They needed, and, and most of them couldn't afford to hire Anderson Consulting to help them. And so in, in 1989, I started my own business of, of helping companies, and I did that for a long time as a consultant. And then in the late 90s, I started my media company, which is where I, I was just arrogant, Tony. I was just arrogant enough to, to, to believe that I had something to say to more, more than one person at a time. And, uh, and I've been doing that on a, on a mass scale, you know, on the radio and on the Internet ever since then. And, and the idea was this. Most small businesses, when they don't know something, they often won't ask because it'll make them feel like they're uncompetitive or if not stupid. And 
you and I both know that's not the case. And so I said, what if we can give them information that they don't have to ask for? They just, all they have to do is hang out and we'll give them the information. Therefore, I introduced them to thousands of people who are world-class thought leaders in their field. And so that's what we've been doing and, and that's what we'll continue to do. And, and the truth is, other than being a single parent, there is no harder job on the planet than being the CEO of a small business. The CEO of Exxon, his, his degree of difficulty in any given day doesn't even approach the degree of difficulty of a small business CEO. You know, Jim, so beautifully said, and I think, you know, at the time you did this, you stepped into, I'll call it a niche. It's, it's more of a mass, but right. as, as, as you and I both know, the market we serve at thomasnet.com, some 70% of manufacturing markets are made up of what you and I would think of as small to medium businesses. And, and I want to pick up on something you said, because I think it's a really powerful point. Oftentimes, these are businesses that were started by entrepreneurs who perhaps had a single discipline, most likely engineering, Correct. most likely some component of manufacturing where they had a deep level of experiential skill and trained and perhaps academic skill. And as they started to build a business, suddenly now they're faced with things like marketing. <laughs> they're faced with things like sales. They're faced with things like perhaps new technologies that they didn't know about or didn't learn about. And I really want to draw the distinction between larger companies that have built-in infrastructure, teams of people that focus on different functions, and how challenging I think it oftentimes is. And we'll get into the era we're living through right now and what challenges these folks are seeing. But how often for those small to medium business leaders, you know, it's the Shakespeare line of heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. Mm -hmm. It can be very difficult to learn some of those things while you're also running a business. Well, there's no question about that. And that person you were identifying who started their business with that expertise, whether regardless of what it may be, if they came out of corporate America, you know, they looked around them and they said, you know, I'm a part of your one. I'm, I'm an entrepreneurial cork. Uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the smallest unit of, in, in the marketplace. One of my favorite things to do is when somebody asks me to speak to the uh, technology expert in the company. You know, I want to speak to your tech manager or whatever. And, and I said, you're speaking to him. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. When, you know, when, you, when, that, when that engineer leaves corporate America and starts their own business and somebody says, I want to speak to your cost accountant. Or I want I want to speak right? to your yeah. I want to speak to your your marketing VP or whatever and and you have to learn that real quick but but you're exactly right. However, you know you've heard about uh, being in a uh, in a in a scenario a life or death scenario where you never felt more alive because you were you had all this risk all these threats and you never felt more alive. That's the that's the day of in the life of a small business owner. Yeah, Jim, I think it's it's such a visceral, powerful statement, and I couldn't agree with you more. Let's move in and acknowledge the time and era you and I and others are living through right now. And we're some, depending on whose math you want to use, 40 days into the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as people are describing this as a, a black swan moment, when you and I were talking last week, I think I, I made the statement, Jim, that I bet you probably in the previous 20 years, I've used the term unprecedented maybe half a dozen times. Right. I'm using it a half a dozen times an hour now just to kind of give myself and others a frame of reference. Talk a little bit about what you're hearing and seeing perhaps from some of your listeners. And I don't know that this is unique to small to medium business, but perhaps small to medium business has two dimensions here. One, perhaps they can be more agile than the big company. 
but also they don't always have the infrastructure and the resources to fall back. And talk a little bit about what we're living through right now and kind of what you're seeing. Well, this is, I've been through seven recessions before. I broadcast during Y2K, during the attacks of 9-11, during the collapse of 2008 and 9 and other, other issues that we've had. You are exactly right. I've tried to go back and find out where there was any kind of a precedent for this. And here's the essence of the unprecedented part. It's not that small businesses have had, haven't had, had to deal with it, uh, you know, with a downturn before, with a shock, even from, you know, even, even Wall Street, like the 2008 and 9 thing was a pure digital greed play and, and small businesses didn't create that, but yet they had to deal with it. They became collateral damage there. But here's the essence of your unprecedented word. Never before in the history of the country has a president, a governor, and a mayor in varying degrees of forcefulness and assumed authority, presumed authority, said to a business, you have to close up and to their customers, you can't go in that door. Never before has that ever happened. And that, my friend, is the essence of what we have to pay attention to as we come out of this. We have to go back to that point. See, I was talking to my audience in 2008, 2009. I, pre I predicted in January 2008 that the recession had already started. And indeed, it did start in the fourth quarter 2007, as you remember, Tony. And I saw, I saw the credit card companies cutting everyone's balance, their credit headroom, I saw that happening in February of 2008, six months before AIG collapsed in, in September. And so these are marketplace things that whether they're created or not, these are things that happen in the marketplace and the marketplace heals itself. And maybe you don't survive. Some people didn't survive. A lot of people didn't. Big companies, small companies. But in the end, the marketplace healed itself and moved on. It took Main Street longer than, than Wall Street. They did, all that happened. But this is different because a pandemic caused a financial collapse. And that's, a, that's an exacerbation that we've never had before. And that's where it's hard to predict where we're going forward, Tony, because coming out of this, and this is the thing that people are worried about, it's one thing for the government to give us help. Thank God for that. It's another thing to maybe start opening up businesses and, and states again. Hopefully that'll happen sooner than later. We've got to get back to work. But Tony, we don't know what the behavior is going to be. What are What is the consumer? See, I'm convinced that long-term, and when I say long-term, actually, I should probably say mid-term, I'm convinced that your customers are going to be rocking and rolling in about a year, largely because I think America is going to benefit. I think the Western Hemisphere, the North American, South American continents, this hemisphere is going to benefit from this long-term because we're going to rethink redundancy of our supply chain completely after this. But when it comes to the consumer, we're a consumer economy. How is their behavior going to manifest going forward? When we say, okay, you can open up, but you still have to social distance. If you own a restaurant, Tony, and you have to have 50% capacity, you still can't be profitable. Restaurants manage their profit down to the order of French fries, down to the quarter hour of payroll. When you're that tight, and you have to have half capacity, you think you can still open up like that? I mean, those are the kinds of things. What is the behavior going to be? Do you want to go sit in the middle seat of an airplane for the next year or two? Who, who wants to do that? Who's going to take a cruise for the next five years? Those kinds of behaviors are going to be how this recovery 
is going to be unprecedented. What do you think? You're spot on. And I think these are the big questions that many of us are trying to sort right now. And certainly from a macroeconomic point of view, and I shared this with you and your listeners last week, we are clearly seeing an acceleration of the reshoring towards North American manufacturing. Now, we've been seeing that for the better part of a decade, Mm -hmm. but without question, it's up 25 to 30%. On my show last week, didn't you say that Mexico was the new China? Without question. I've been quoting you for the last 10 days. (laughs) Well, feel free, my friend. Yeah, it was free advice. So take it for what it's worth. But all kidding aside, this is unprecedented, I think, in terms of the reevaluation of global supply chains. And I think that is going to accelerate a bit of a shift towards North American manufacturing. I think that's one component of it. I think consumer behavior is something that's, boy, it's wide open, Jim. And I think, you know, the thing that's fascinating, if we fall back on previous experiences, and you and I've had this conversation, you beautifully outlined your background a while ago. I ran a business through a major earthquake in the Bay Area back in the 80s. I was running a downtown a downtown business uh, in New York City during September 11th. Uh, I managed a trade show oriented business through the financial wow. collapse in uh, 08, 09. So you and I and other business leaders have been through these things before. And I will tell you, so many of the predictions that we hired economists, I was at a big company at the time of the 08, 09 collapse. We hired economists to come in and advise us of when people were going to go back to trade shows and the travel economy and all those types of things. I would tell you, Jim, that 100% of them were wrong. Yeah. And you know, some were positive and they were wrong. Some were negative and they were wrong. And I think it's a fascinating time. What I've been thinking a lot about, and I kind of want to get your take on this, is less what may or may not happen in consumer behavior, because I think that's a very difficult one to wrap your head around. But Jim, what do you think the attributes are of the companies that are going to come out of this in a position to, dare I say it, take advantage of it, right? Mm-hmm. To benefit. You and I were talking last week about these positive forcing functions. What do you see in the attributes of those companies? What, what would they be doing or have, have done to perhaps put themselves into position to benefit as we come through this? Well, one of the things that I talked about, and, and you know, when you've got as much gray hair as I have, it's hard to talk without you know going back a little ways. And the young people don't like it when you bring history in, but you and I both know the power of knowing what's happened in the past and drawing on those perspectives. So I'm going to go back to 09, January of 09. I started telling my audience, surviving is winning. First of January, I said, your singular goal for 2009 is to open your door January 1, 2010. Surviving is winning. And what happened over the next 10 years, small businesses, the ones that survived, and many of them didn't, unfortunately, the ones that survived got better. They learned how to operate a tighter operation. They became better managers. They became more professional managers. They deleveraged. And so consequently, by the time 2016 rolled around, and one of the things I predicted was I said, whenever the economy on main, whenever the Main Street economy becomes robust again, the small businesses that survive will be outrageously successful because they're already operating in a, in a, a 2% growth mode with a, profitably. They survived and they're profitable at 2% GDP. When GDP goes to three or more, their same operation is going to be sitting there ready to go. And so consequently, as you remember, the biggest problem they had wasn't wasn't finding capital, it was finding people. And so consequently, here we are right now at this moment, even with all the difficulty we've had, 
The small business sector in America has never been more prepared from a balance sheet, from a cash standpoint, to weather this storm than right now. We're still going to lose a lot of people because everybody wasn't there. The polling that I did showed about 25 to 30% are going to be lost. But the others, they're going to be in varying degrees of, of, of strength. And I believe that what's going to happen on the other side of this, with the help of the government, thank God again that they were, we're going to get some of that, with the help of the government stepping in and, and, and in the breach for us, I believe that when the things start turning around, when they start opening things up, I think the small business sector, and I've been saying this, and, and, and Tony, I've been, I've been reporting on this since 1st of February. I wrote my Black Swan article February 15th, talking about this thing going on. So I've been saying for a long time that small businesses would be the foundation under the recovery. And what that also means, Tony, is that when things turn around and people start buying and, and the, the dynamo starts going again, millions of small businesses will be poised to take advantage of that, not only for themselves, but to help the economy get going again. And Tony, I'm going to come back to, I'm going to say one more thing and I'll, and I'll turn it back over to you. Another thing that's happened over the last 35 years, and you've seen this, is small business sec- the small business sector converted from being a mom and pop backwater operation to vertically integrated as a partner with a corporation, with a bigger customer. When I started working with companies, uh, major companies 40 years ago, the guy who mowed the yard, the guy who painted the wall, the lady who delivered the mail to the offices, they were all employees of the company. Today, they're all contractors. They're all small business contractors. We are vertically integrated. So when corporate America wakes up and turns this thing around, and Tony, they start doing something that, that you and I have talked about that I believe with all my heart, we're going to have a rethinking of our the redundant path of our supply chain and, and the services that are available to us. I think that redundancy is going to be a major, major bottom line driver for, for small business, the small business sector, because they're, they're no longer going to be able to have one source of a product or a service we, the, I think Wall Street is going to demand that corporate America have redundancy. And I think a big part of that redundancy is going to come from small business. And that's the reason why midterm, long term, I'm excited about where things are going, even though we've got a lot of pain right now. Hey, Jim, beautifully said. And, and I just want to touch on a couple of points in there. I think your take on vertical integration is really a fascinating point there. And I know if I take a, a look across our customer base, and you know, I, I don't want to give up proprietary information, but we've got about twelve thousand, you know, customers that advertise on the ThomasNet.com yep. platform, and they're looking to reach in-market buyers, procurement professionals, engineers, MROs, and it is not uncommon, Jim, that I will go visit customers, and you could meet somebody running a ten million dollar a year business, and they have three mm-hmm. customers. And they're all Fortune 100 companies. Yeah, yeah. So you you know you know the manu- the National Association of Manufacturers, their membership is like 90, 93, 4, 5 percent small businesses. Absolutely. They don't make airplanes or cars. They make parts for those things. You and I both know Ford is not an automobile manufacturer. Boeing is not a, an airplane manufacturer. They're automobile and airplane assemblers. You're spot on. I think there's a, another component that's inside here, Jim, that is, I, I really want to get your take. Kind of the last question I'll ask you before I ask our last two questions that we ask all of our uh, podcast guests. One of the other things that I think is implicit in what you're observing here, and this is also an ongoing conversation you and I have had, 
when people ask me about, gee, how has there been so much reshoring over the last you know, 15 years? I oftentimes point to the entrepreneurial spirit, but also the adoption of advanced manufacturing technology, which has made North American manufacturing competitive on the global stage by price, by quality, by speed, mm-hmm. by you know everything you can imagine. And as I look at that, what is starting to happen is we're seeing the second wave of digital transformation, which is really in and around industrial sales and marketing. That was kind of the last mile for a lot of these companies. And, and mm-hmm. you've written about this. You, you have a lot of you know, perspective of this. Talk about where you think the companies that have invested in that or developed expertise in that are going to find themselves today and perhaps in, into the near-term future. Well, let me, let me give you an example of why what you just said has almost become perfected. I'm a lot older than you, Tony. I remember when a recession was caused by the supply chain getting bollocked up. The people on, on the final receiving end didn't tell the people on the manufacturing end or the originations end of the supply chain that their customers had stopped coming in the store. Consequently, somewhere along the way, you know, all that supply got stopped and nobody told anybody. And we had all this excess stuff and it caused a recession. That was a classic recession, those kinds of things. How long has it been since we've had a recession like that? Think about that. Think about how long it's been. We haven't had a recession that was caused by a supply chain scenario in a couple of generations. And so that's an example, in my opinion, that we've gotten pretty good at managing our supply chain. We got better communication. We got instant communication. We've got the ability for, you know, some small companies have the ability for a their big customer to literally go right into their, through their VPN network and find out how many how many widgets they have on, on the shelf. I mean, they're, we're talking about vertically integrated. So this is the kind of up-to-date second-by-second connection that, that helps all of us, and it ripples around the world. It helps all of us become more effective. And, and therefore, the corporate America customer doesn't have to keep that inventory on their books. They don't have to keep those people on their books. They can they can put it out. We're more efficient. When I worked for IBM, they loved doing business with me because they knew I didn't have to convene a committee to make a decision for them. <laughs> and so I hope I'm answering your question. I really think it's not just the fact that we've got this digital leverage that's capable, giving us more capability. It's more than that. It's the I call it the incrementalization, the granularization, the democratization of technology, of digital leverage down to the tiny, even one-person company that can vertically integrate all the way up the supply chain. And I, when I say supply chain, I don't even mean manufacturing. You know, it could be, it could be a lot of different things. Uh, the ability for all of us to vertically integrate that way has really made it a lot more efficient. And therefore, Tony, it's going to make the recovery that much quicker. That's why the recoveries are happening. I mean, look at this. Think about this, Tony. We went into a recession in, in fourth quarter 2007. Even though the financial collapse happened only nine months before, by July 1, 2009, the recession was over. We'd recovered from that within, you know, within nine months of the, of the crash, of the, of the financial crash. That's a testament to what you're talking about. And it's, it's, it's ubiquitous across the, the marketplace. And it's getting better. Now, that's the good news. 
the bad news is every opportunity, every, every capability creates a disruption. And there are people who are being disrupted and they become irrelevant. Irrelevance is coming at a pace that's taking people's breath away, the, the ability to become irrelevant. The one thing you've got you've got to tell people is whatever relevance means tomorrow is not what it means today. You better find out what that is, and that comes from your customer. Spot on observations and perspectives. You know, one just quick vignette I'll give you, then I'd love to get your take on our final two questions. You know, I get asked by people that don't really understand supply chains or they don't think of the business they're in as having a supply chain. They ask me about, you know, how did this happen and what's going on? And I oftentimes give an example where I'll say, look, imagine you're a procurement professional of a large hospital chain. You've been sourcing what we now know PPE stands for personal protection equipment. You could perhaps be sourcing for a decade or more from a local distributor. You probably didn't realize, other than you'd had to pass OSHA and ISO certification standards, you may not have known where that was manufactured. And guess Mm -hmm. what you've now found out the hard way? Mm -hmm. 85% of that distributor's merchandise, right, gloves, gowns, PPE masks, are coming from a 250 square mile area called Wuhan, China. That's right. And now the scrutiny with which that procurement professional is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to now understand that granularity that, you know, as I've used the term, Jim, the the wholesale reevaluation of supply chains is happening uh, all over. If I could tell anybody to, to expect this to be imposed on all of us going forward, I mentioned relevance earlier. There's another word, redundancy. I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. I would expect anybody from the smallest company to the largest company to be asked by their stakeholders, tell me about your redundancy. You bet. And not only in supply chain, but also in in your internet connectivity. Yeah, Yeah. You're, uh, you're absolutely right. And you're going to have to have a line item. You're going to have a line item on your operating statement that I think will be called redundancy. Jim, with that in mind, let me turn to the last two questions that we ask all of our guests. And, and uh, the first question is, what's the one thing that you wish with all of your knowledge on small and medium business and you, you've become an expert in and around the SMB in manufacturing? What do you wish that more people understood about manufacturing? Well, I think that they need to have a bit of perspective on what we talked about earlier, the fact that Boeing doesn't manufacture airliners, they assemble them. The left wing is made in, in Georgia, the right wing is made in Utah, the electronics are made in China, you know, and I'm building a house and I, I bought two, what they call iron doors, actually made of steel, but they call them iron doors. I bought those from a small business in Tennessee. The metal was made in Poland, the glass came from England, the door was assembled in China. Love that example. And guess what? I bet you $1,000, all four of those companies, including the one I bought it from, you and I would call them a small business. Absolutely. And so we have to think about that. And the reason you said I understood these things, the advantage that I had was when I saw this coming at 1st of February, I ordered some things for my house early because I feared that things would get shut down. And consequently, those doors are on my building. I don't think they would be. In fact, I've called the company and they're now months out for any future stuff. And so we have to realize that we truly have a global economy and there are people in your community that you probably don't know are essential integrators of products and services to the things that you walk over 
uh, to a store and buy and, and take off the shelf and you're upset when they're not there because somebody didn't they didn't make it available to you and you should turn around and thank a small business probably in your community well said last question for you jim if you could put one sentence on a billboard that best expresses your personal philosophy what would it say jim well this year i'd have to say surviving is winning and i really hope people will get that across i know some corporate america companies their board has already told them, just go ahead and let's just go ahead and write off 2020. Let's move on. You know, let's just let's salvage what we can and move on. That's one thing. Number two, something I learned from my grandmother, another, again, for the, for the times, my grandmother would say, this too will pass. To learn more about resources available to help your small industrial business during these uncertain times, and for more information on Jim Bassingame, check out the links provided in the show notes of today's podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Michaela Tierney. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.